Hey, got questions? We are putting together a listener question episode. So call and leave us a voicemail with your question and we will answer as many as we can. Call 803-900-5252. 803-900-5252. I'm Christian Bush. And I'm Cindy Watts. Welcome to our podcast, 52. I turned 52 this year, believe it or not, and I am releasing 52 songs to celebrate. This podcast looks at the relationship between my 52 new songs and 52 of my most popular songs from my back catalog with plenty of stories and laughs along the way. Hey, Cindy. Hi, Christian. How are you today? Good. I'm going to put my headphone on. Well, that'd be good because in the headphones, we sound really important. Yeah, I'd hate to miss the dad joke. Come on, you ready? I'm ready. Let me have it. Um, my friend decided to become an archaeologist. Now his life is in ruins. Hey, <laughs> uh, out of this one. I went to a bookstore and saw a book titled How to Solve 50% of Your Problems. I bought two. <laughs> okay, so I have a challenge for you. For the next podcast. You ready for one that's terrible? Like, this is terrible, terrible. Oh, okay. Before I accept your challenge. All right. My favorite childhood memory is building sandcastles with my grandfather until my mother took the urn from me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> You're right. That one's awful. That's terrible. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, I want you to write your own dad joke. I want the next time you tell me a dad joke, I want it to be a, you know, a Christian Bush special. Oh, just not crowdsourced? Not crowdsourced. Okay. A Christian Bush special. I will. I will absolutely do it. All right. All right. Today's pairing. I know you were waiting because you just didn't know because you didn't read the title yet of this particular episode. But if you didn't read the title, I'm going to tell you. Today, we're going to listen to Heart of Yours from 52. And then we're going to listen to Stuck Like Glue from Sugarland from the Incredible Machine Record. So songs that at least Stuck Like Glue sound super fun. Yes. But underneath. So yeah, Stuck Like Glue is uh, deceptive in that it's a, it's a bouncy, happy song about that moment in your relationship where the person that you love so dearly has really pissed you off to such a degree <laughs> that you're really considering leaving. And then they do something and they smile or they make you laugh or whatever it is. And you're back. And you're back. <laughs> and, I, and I bet unless you were listening closely to the lyrics of that song, you didn't realize that until right now. But next time you'll hear it and you'll be like, oh. And you wonder why we made the video like crazy lady. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like smashing the cake on him and all this stuff. And we were like, this is really funny. She thought it was pent up aggression. Yeah. <laughs> and then heart of yours, um, it, it's similar, you know, this is a, a, what appears on the surface is really happy, um, buoyant song, uh, that was created. I actually have the pieces. I brought some of them for you so you can hear how different it is from when it was first made. Um, but it, the, you know, the topic is pretty heavy. Yeah. Well, want to tell us about the topic? Oh, yes. I guess I should. You should. Um, so have you ever been in a relationship where the person that you're with um, just has a, uh, 
something about them where their trouble is so kind of consuming, right? That you get wrapped up in it and you can't, (laughs) it's like a spiral, like a, like a siphon in the middle of the ocean and you can't escape the, the event horizon of, of being pulled in. You feel a responsibility to help and helping them is consuming you. Yeah. And you'll do anything, you know, but you love them. You will do anything. Um, so that's, that's, that's the frame of what this song is about. It's the, you know, I can't fix this heart of yours as if it's broken in some way, but you know, it's kind of originally inspired by when I got divorced. Um, I, I, there were some rules that my therapist kind of put in place for me. Like, you know, don't, don't buy a house for the first two years, you know, no big purchases. There's things like that. And then there were some like dating rules that she was helping me with. And one of them was I couldn't, um, I shouldn't date anybody that has chronic pain because somehow my empathy activation is just big. And, and if you're in pain and I love you, I will do anything and I will kind of subvert my own needs and my own, even my own personality or wants just to serve you to make sure you're all right. And, um, and that was a hard thing to get my head around. You know, there were some other rules too. Like I'm a, I'm a, my parents were both alcoholics. So they call us adult children of alcoholics, right? Which means you also have a kind of a weird thing in your brain about, Uh, When you were little, that when you needed to eat and your parents were trashed or something, you had to feed yourself. (laughs) Right. So you have to just like the needs that you have, you can't depend on somebody else. So you, you, you mix some of that stuff up with newly divorced (laughs) and you get really a, a storm. (laughs) But, um, as I was realizing this about people that were in pain and chronic pain, Physical pain. We're talking physical about pain. physical pain. This is like, if you know people, I have dear friends of mine, people I love that walk around in pain every day. And um, it's not the kind of pain that you take an opio- opioid for, but it'd be like, you know, crap tons of Advil or sometimes they'll drink a lot or whatever it is to escape, you know, that pain being on you all the time. And it, it generates um, a, a reaction in me. And a reaction I'm not great at controlling um, because I want to fix it. You want to help. <laughs> it's a man thing. Um, you want to fix it. I mean, I'm even doing it with the musical I'm writing right now, right? So the driving force in this Kavanaugh musical, besides the fact Kavanaugh's wacko, and that whole thing was wacko, is that a, a man who hears about something that's kind of like you, men want to fix things that are broken and women want to comfort Right. And so these are these two driving um, genetic old brain, lizard brain pieces that are pushing. And in this song, it definitely is. I want to fix it and I can't fix it. (laughs) And it's a reminder to me, um, even though it's a metaphor, to be really aware that. um, That I that I. I'm soft in that place, you know, and that makes me not a good partner. If I can't, if I can't be me, you can't depend on me. <laughs> right. So this is, we ended up writing this song. Wow. Well, let's, let's hear it. I swear it's a lot happier than the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
Also, this has uh, the the probably the best horn arrangement on the entire album. Oh, those are big words. And uh, and this is again Jill Scott's horn section, and um, and the Bettys are singing with me on this one. So oh, wow, uh, here we go. Um, off of fifty two, this is uh, Heart of Yours. <laughs> When I get a flat, I go to the back, I pull out a jack and a crowbar. When the rain hits and the ceiling drips, I've always got the tools for the job. But when it comes to loving someone who doesn't really want any of the love I have, no matter how handy I am, I'm sorry but I just can't fix that heart. For the life of me Some time ago Something inside you broke Should've known that it would be the best of me But when it comes to loving someone Who doesn't really want any other love I have No matter how handy I am I'm sorry but I just can't So I want to hear the song that is the answer to that, that is the other perspective. It's like, you're saying, I can't fix that heart of yours, but I have all of these tools. I want to hear the song where the other side of the relationship goes. You're doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah. I know that I'm broken. You don't need a jack. Oh, you're using all the wrong pieces, buddy. Yeah. You're using the wrong tools. Yeah. Or I know that I'm broken and I'm super sad about it. 
and this other person's trying really hard and I know it's not helping. Okay. I, I accept the challenge. Will you give me like a day or so? Yep. So now I need a song <laughs> and a dad joke. Just, you're going to be very busy. <laughs> but do, do, does it make sense why such a happy song that we just heard is also like has some, absolutely. has a little weight on the back of it. It absolutely does. But it, it's, it's balanced though. Kind of. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I just don't think people talk about it that much. Okay. And, and it's something you should talk about. You know, that's what happens when you're in your fifties. When I, you know, it's like, uh, oh, we don't have much time left here. Uh, cause you get this impending, like, wait, what I'm, I'm how old? Oh, well, I'm going to tell you how I feel about this. Or why are we not talking about this? You know, um, or I don't have time to spend doing this thing that isn't going to work. Yeah. It's just, it, it's just saving everybody a little heartache. You know, it's, um, that's all, it's like the, you know, once you figure out things like the adult child of alcoholic thing, once you figure that out or you've heard it or you get a, a sense of what it is, all of a sudden stuff just starts falling in place about, you know, your personality. You're like, oh, I thought that was just me. Oh, oh, that's why I act that way. Or your friend, you're like, oh, that's why they are, you know, and it's, they're not necessarily victims of it. This is just the circumstances through which they adapted. And when they were adapting, they were making the best choices available to adapt. It just not, a, it, it doesn't work so well as an adult. <laughs> so give me an example. Like you, you earlier, you talked about, you know, having to feed yourself because maybe your parents were drunk. But like, like what else? Right. An adult child of alcoholic, one of the things that they typically do is they say, no, man, I, I, I'll take care of myself. It's a very typical thing. No, I got this. No, I, I'm fine. And then what, what's really going on inside is I cannot depend on you, my friend, who I've known for years across the table. Right. <laughs> um, in their brains, they can't depend on that person to follow through with whatever it is they're offering, whether it's to pick up their kid, whether it's to, um, you know, uh, cook dinner tonight, what, you know, it's their brains can't do that. So they immediately default to the, I've got it. Don't worry about it. I'm fine. And sometimes it's, it's really the way you see it the most um, clearly is when somebody's like, no, 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 I got this. And they're on the Titanic going down. Oh, wow. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. you see them in a relationship, maybe a bad relationship. And they're like, no, no, it's going to be fine. This relationship is fine. And they're just living in a different reality. Not because they don't see their own pain. It's just they don't think anybody's going to help them, even if they were to say, because the chances of them asking their parents for help always ends up in a, it, it's never coming. <coughs> Sorry. It, the, the, uh, the ACOA kid that has grown up always sees, um, the chance that whatever it is that they need the most isn't coming unless they do it themselves. I wonder. <coughs> Take your time while we edit around it. I wonder how it's different 
being a child of an alcoholic versus the child of someone who worked all of the time or the child of divorced parents whose right. parents just weren't home and they had to learn to depend on themselves. I, I'm not sure if circumstance is that different. I think the only thing that's weird about it is the neglect uh, comes with a different kind of attachments. Yeah, that makes like, sense. Like for instance, the next day the parent doesn't remember you asked. Oh, wow. Right. So you feel even... Yeah, it's like... Like diminished, yeah, even more diminished. Like, why would I ask again? Because you don't even remember that I asked you, so this is a useless choice. Well, I'm not going to ask you more. I'm just going to take care of it. Right. And and you become very... You, you, you learn to self-parent. So you become the child and the parent. So it's a thing. It's a real... Uh, your brain can get really busy. Sounds like it. <laughs> and they are great. And the thing to remember, if you're anybody out there is listening about this, is you are not a bad person because this happened. What's what, what you have to get to and what you get to when you're my age or younger, hopefully, is that happened and you made the best decision you could make to stay alive at the time. Yeah. You adapted in a perfectly acceptable way. The issue now as you become an adult where you are self-sufficient, you can, in fact, do all this stuff for yourself. You're no longer six, <laughs> you know, right. you can go get a job that gets money, that buys food, that does it, you know, like there's a whole thing that the, the systems you put in place then that put you on the, the trust concern for people around you or dependent, dependableness concern None of that stuff applies now as an adult. So you have to unwire a lot of your base wiring in order to fall in love, in order to let someone fall in love with you. Wow. Yeah. You have to do a lot of things that maybe some of your friends don't really have to do or your partners don't have to do to get to that kind of authenticity. So you got to work harder and mind you, you get anywhere near somebody who's drinking and you think that stuff doesn't pop back up in six seconds with their tequila. <laughs> right. It, it, it does. Like I can even, that's why I can't even get anywhere near scotch, I, but I'll drink wine all day. <laughs> right. But I go into that. I'm like, wait, what? Yeah, nope. And, well, it's not just that. It just puts my brain into a place. But now that I'm older. Um, I'm very aware when I drink around my kids I'm very aware, you know, um, all the way around, you know, I would never want to be responsible for something. Like I barely even drink when I play songs. Right. Because I, I feel like there's a, a responsibility I have to people who are depending on me. <laughs> so interesting. Just makes you hyper responsible in yeah. that area. It sounds like. It must. Or at least it's in your brain. Right. You don't want to let anybody down the way you were let down. So your brain adjusts whether you're conscious of it or not. That's super interesting. Like my dad, in such an opposite experience because my dad to this day maintains he's never had a drink of alcohol like at all. And so I'm, I think I'm going to be 42 in March. I might be 43. I'm not real sure. But it's true. <laughs> Was it birth certificate in Sevier County is like a moving target? It's, I'm so old <laughs> at this point that I don't want to really remember. Oh, my gosh. But um, my dad said not too long ago, we were in the car in Sevier County, and he goes, Cindy, 
I know you would never do anything so bad as like go to a bar and drink alcohol because that would be wrong. I don't want to be like, daddy, do you know what I do for a living? Like I basically get paid to go to bars to watch music. <laughs> like That's how I make my house payment. <laughs> but I did not say that. Oh my gosh. I said, no, daddy. <laughs> and then we went in the house. But did your dad work a lot? Is that why you were asking the question? Um, always, always, uh, you know, like somewhere else, because I think it is similar because if, you know, when parents, well, no, I work a lot. Oh, you're worried about your own kids. Yeah. No, I work a lot and my parents were divorced. So it's like, I'm, you know, listening to your experience and drawing all of these parallels. So my parents got divorced when I was, I think 13 and my mom had a boyfriend immediately. So I went from two parents in the house my entire first 13 years to no one being in the house because my dad lived someplace else. And my mom was with her boyfriend a lot, like 24 seven on the weekends. So it is, yeah. I mean, if I was, if I was a bad kid or even an adventurous kid, we would have had the best parties on the mountain, (laughs) but I'm the most boring person ever. So nothing ever happened. But um, it does, it makes you think about how, about how that experience translates to other people and other things and why people act the way they do. I think it's fascinating. It really is. I mean, the more I, I you know, I've been in therapy for a long time and um, it's, it's helped a lot because, you know, my mother died when I was young, uh, when I was 30. So I didn't have a lot of adult parenting. I didn't have a lot of like, hey, mom, what do you do when blah, blah, blah. Right. <laughs> Like she didn't even get to meet my kids. So, um, I've been, I depend a lot on my therapist for a little bit of guidance that way. And, uh, it it sure. And I, you know, I write music for a living based on relationships. And, uh, so I'm exploring them all the time and I'm so curious at every corner, you know, how does this work? How does that work? How are you doing? What did I see? What did I not see? Um, and even in, uh, the stuff that Jennifer and I explore in Sugarland, you know, like, uh, I, I'm writing for a female voice, right? It's so different, you know, but, or is it, you know, like, and what is different and why? And so I, weirdly, I have like a, a, a strange look into, um, constantly learning about the other, which brings us to stuck like glue. Ha <laughs> ha. Right. Right. And my, my favorite thing you said earlier off the mic, maybe for a purpose, was that <laughs> uh, you said, you said in the song, you know, it's, it's about that moment when your partner says something and you're so irritated, you just want to stab them in the neck, but you don't. <laughs> That's right. And uh, I said, unless you really don't like them and he goes, and in that case, you stab, stab them, them in the, in the neck. neck and it works. And right? it works. Um, yeah. This song is definitely a relationship song. Right. And um, when it appeared, it was a um, it was a pitch. And Sherland really never took pitches about anything. And our drummer at the time, um, Travis McNabb, was going to drum this album for us, which was in country music is a very rare occurrence that you're live band is also your recording band. And, um, Travis was going to come in and we were going to have just a bass player and then just the rest, then us. 
we were going to play everything else on this whole incredible machine record. We had a big idea and we had gotten to the end of the sessions. Like we were at the end of week number two, I think is what we were on. And Travis had been telling me, please, man, can you uh, take a pitch from my old bandmate, Kevin Griffith, who was in better than Ezra with him. And I said, you know, man, if I do that, then I've got to call all the other writers we work with and allow them to do the same because this is also their livelihood that I'm messing around with by choosing not to do that. And um, he he kind of understood that, I think. But then he he also said, just give it a shot. And I said, well, look, how about this? I won't take a pitch, but if you'll just send me a chorus, I would be happy to listen to it. And then, of course, I had to call a couple of the other folks and be like, send me a chorus. And a lot of them didn't want to. They're like, we'll just fly down and write with you. I'm like, I don't have that much time. I have days left here, not weeks. And uh, Kevin sent me essentially the, what oh, what oh, stuck like he sent me a, there you go, there you go heartbeat again, that part. And it, it, it came on top of like a guitar and a beatbox was what the only things that were in the recording, the, the demo. And the beatbox was like, literally that, like when you listen to the recording, you'll hear it. It's like, it's like your mouth noises making the beats. And Kevin had told me that he had written the part that they had with a guy named Shy Carter, who he was like, this is a guy who works with Nelly. And he was sort of qualifying who his co-writer was. And I was like, I, Kevin, honestly, I don't think I've even heard your songs outside of better than Ezra, you know? So I wouldn't know. And of course I don't know who Shai Carter is at all. Um, but I, I want to hear the song. Now, you know, Shai has his own, has his own record deal with Warner and he's one of Keith Urban's like huge collaborators. So people listening to this. Yeah. So that was 2009. It's like the early days. This was, he hadn't had any success in country music. I don't think. And, uh, 2009 versus 2022 was also, you can imagine very different, um, on who, who is included and who is not included in country music. Right. And Sugarland's never had a problem with including anyone. Right. Like we're like, everyone is like Gaga plays with us, Rihanna, Beyonce. Like we don't care as long as you're fun. And you are, you are trying to perform for people that are, you're not doing it for you. That's why we don't, we never called it nettles and bush, you know, like it was called Sugarland, and, uh, for a reason. But when we, when you listen to the song, so we were talking about the perspective of men and women. So as this came, it was, uh, it was not written from a female perspective in any way. And we definitely twisted it and put what would she be saying to him because it's a female singer, right? Right. Um, and it does, it takes you down to this moment where it's like, and then you do that thing that makes me laugh and suddenly I'm right back. And what you're not hearing is the parentheses before that. <laughs> and what's in the parentheses before that? In my mind, the parentheses is, and you do that thing that drives me bonkers and you know, it drives me bonkers and you did it again on purpose for the 15th time. And I have scissors in my pocket <laughs> and you, 
you may or may not know I have scissors in my pocket, but this could be it because I know where your, you know, your aorta is. I can get to it <laughs> from where I'm standing. And then you make me laugh and my grip loosens on the scissors and they just stay in my pocket. You know, um, it's a, it's a, why do we do this to each other? Right. Um, and is it inevitable? But there is something powerful about, you know, love can do some things that other, th- other things can't. And then, of course, there's the back of the song where we famously do Christian's dance hall rap interpreted by Jennifer Nuttall, <laughs> which is pretty hilarious because we were trying to get Akon to rap on this, which was probably a bad political idea at the time. He was had, had, he had been a bad Akon. <laughs> he had been bad at gone. And, uh, but he was an Atlanta guy and I think Jennifer's sister knew him or something. And we thought about it and we asked around, you know, like what would it cost for somebody to do this? And when they told us how much it would cost, we were like, Oh, Oh, we're writing that ourselves. No, thank you. No, thank you. We'll just go to Walmart. <laughs> and, um, and we did, we wrote it and Jennifer did a great job and sold it as a thing. Yeah. All right, here you go. Something, you know, Listen through a lens that you didn't know before. Right. <laughs> we promise we're not crazy. We're just Sugarland. And and really nobody has scissors. No, nobody has scissors. Nobody has scissors. Okay, here you go. Enjoy everybody. So Oh, 
First country music, uh, accordion and acoustic guitar and big old backbeat and beatboxing hit ever. Probably the only. <laughs> Such a tastemaker, Christian Bush. Oh, I don't know. I, I But we definitely are fearless when it comes to uh, how does it make you feel? You know, like I remember trying to put a lot of things in that song and we just were like, nope, it does just fine with just this. I think self-editing is a powerful tool. And I guess that's where your rules help. It does. Oh, I wonder what the rules would have been for that Sugarland record. I know that one of them was Jennifer told me, she's like, you're going to play all the guitar on this. I was like, really? Are you sure you want to do that? Cause like everyone else in the world's a better guitar player. And she's like, no, you're underestimating yourself. She's, and she said, this is very wise. She said, you know, if that is your weakness, let's make it our biggest strength. Well, that's a lovely thing to say. And I always held on to that, you know, well, that was pretty good. So when you're on stage singing that song and everybody's out there, you know, doing their thing, just stuck like glue, are you thinking, oh, you don't get it? <laughs> no, I don't think that at all. I think there's so much joy in that song that it overrides anything. But um, I've always been aware of music, art, literature, movies, all sorts of things that give you more than one um, bite of the apple. So when you see it a second time, you listen to it closer, you read it again, you get a, another, another piece of wisdom. Um, the, the songs that do that the most for me are the ones that are the most singable because sure. you, you sing them long before you, you understand what you're singing. And it's, it's one of the more beautiful things about my job that I take very seriously. You know, when I was a kid, I was singing Bob Marley songs for years, years. I might've been singing them since I was four or five years old. And then by the time I was 25, I was like, what am I singing right here? Oh my gosh. I've been singing to, you know, free these people from these bonds. And I didn't understand that's what I've been singing my whole life. And God bless him for taking a kid from the Appalachian mountains and having him sing that every day. 
to make himself feel better. But also when he figured it out that he's a, a voice in a larger move. Oh. It's kind of cool. It is. <laughs> and and maybe, you know, one of the reasons that Sugarland has always been so accepting. Oh yeah. I always love it when that, like nowadays I'm really super proud of like Hunter Kelly and everybody for like, look, gay country. I'm like, hasn't it country always been gay? Like when were we <laughs> not gay accepting? Like when was, when was it that music somehow was not okay for those people to listen to? Like it never made sense to me, but, um, and it can't, probably has something to do with the idea that music didn't have any music isn't doesn't have any prejudice <laughs> music doesn't judge you right. music doesn't care who you are it just wants to be heard and it's kind of fun to to see it travel right to make music that has the ability to touch people in places that maybe the recognized fan base doesn't think about. Yeah. I always thought it was cool that uh, Sugarland fans self-identified. Like you, 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 I would always, it would always surprise me. They'd be like, you'd, you'd recognize like somebody you'd think would be like driving carpool in a minivan or something. And then you'd also see their kid, but then you'd see like a truck driver. And, so, and there were a lot of motorcycle guys that were huge Sugarland fans. I was like, wait, what? And, and a lot of those motorcycle guys, like some of them would be ones you recognize like Sturgisy, but then uh -huh. some of them would be like, you know, uh, Whiteford Avenue, Atlanta. And it's like a bunch of African-American bicycle gangs are like blaring out Sugarland stuff. I'm like, that's cool as crap. Also, why not? Right. You know, like, look, I remember the first time I got a hold of music that made me feel something that I didn't know anything about. I was like, give me all of it. It's like French fries to me. I can't have just <laughs> one. Like, and now I love French fries, you know, I can't stop, but yeah, Shirley has always been super inclusive. It might be just cause we're from Atlanta and that's just that kind of town. Well, <clears throat> I also think, you know, you've always been such a melody driven writer. And I think, that speaks to people in a different way. And when your melodies get implanted, when you have those earworms, you know, they stick with you and it doesn't matter where you live or what color you are. Or really what language you speak. Yep. If you do your worms right. If you, do, <laughs> if you hook the worm right. Oh gosh, this is getting really weird. <laughs> those worms and Adult children of alcoholics and this was a very wide reaching podcast. Today. This, this one had a thing. It had a thing. All right. Well, I'm glad we did. I feel better for it. Yes. Personal therapy. That's right. With 52. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. Okay. I promise. And I'm supposed to write an answer song and a real dad joke that's coming from me, not crowdsourced from my favorite dad joke places. That's right. Okay. Accepted. See you soon. Hey everybody, Christian Bush here, Cindy Watts, and we would like to thank you for joining us for another episode of 52. 
If you'd like to write us with questions or comments, you can contact us at 52thepodcast at gmail.com. That is the number 52. Also, remember, the best way to help us is to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Please and thank you. You can follow me at Christian Bush on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you can follow Cindy at Cindy Watts on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as well. Thank you for listening, and please join us next week.